Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, and especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Mm. I, when I right. look at a donut, I think about what can I put in there? Right. Yeah. What, what, what types of uh, yeah, like cultural sensibilities and like appreciation of self and identity <laughs> what, what can I fit into the middle of this pastry? <laughs> that's uh, kind of a stretch of a, yeah. of a metaphor, but I guess that's why I don't make the big bucks. We should have had them on writing. the pod, honestly. Yeah. Who was it? Should we get their ass now that we're oh, recording? That's a good idea. Uh, it was film scholar Peter Feng. Okay. Oh, I feel well, kind of bad now that it sounds like he might actually be like a Chinese American scholar who's probably considerably more qualified to talk about this movie than I am. <laughs> I mean, even, even good scholars who are qualified have bad metaphors. Sometimes. That's true. It's just yeah. an off day for Peter. That was, sure. that's not a very right. good metaphor. Like, no, no, it's I mean, a bit. Yeah. Anybody is capable of flimsy better. imagery. Yeah. There has to be a better metaphor, like even just like galaxies or something like something that's separate from another thing, but still contains meaning and can grow. Like there are a billion <laughs> a flower, like that. a fucking Actually, flower thing. But I mean, galaxy is great. Like that's even Galaxy's right there. But, but I just loved like each character dot, dot, dot holds a donut that contains the possibilities <laughs> of for Chinese American identity at its center. Each of the film's characters only serve to widen that hole, thus widening the space for spectorial subjectivity and by extension, Asian American subjectivity. I just also, like the, eight, the 18th thing wrong with this is like, I'm not going to, well, I, obviously I'm a white dude. And so this metaphor is not for me, but I'm like, I wouldn't go around with my donut my whole life. I would eat my donut. Why my donut it, would cease to be. Why is it important <laughs> that each character holds a donut? And is it a single donut or are they different donuts that all get wider? So but could, right. but just Cody, a lot of questions about the donut metaphor. The donut, what are you really eating? You're just eating like the line that makes up the connecting like, like circle of, you're not like the donut is only present by its absence, right? Otherwise, it's just like a. And cow. when you eat, when you eat the whole, when you eat the donut, are you eating the subjectivity that is symbolized by the center that is missing, or does that remain and it's just sort of negative space now? I think I think an easy amendment to this is we pivot to donuts that are exclusively like jelly filled. So it's like Ooh, you start with a, oh. a donut with with no filling. Okay, and as now you into, you gain a sense of Polish American experience. Cult- <laughs> I was no, say, no, this well, is still <laughs> Chinese American. <laughs> What is no, the what is the jelly symbolize in that case? Now that's interesting. Is yeah, that well, like a cultural appreciation, sense I of see. self? Okay, and yeah. then it, it, more the of it gets pumped into sweet. the into the middle. Yeah. Then it will actually and grow. it gets uh, it gets uh, overstuffed. You know those? I love that when jelly donuts like they have so life. much mm-hmm. jelly in there that they're like too big almost. They look like they're about to like burst. Yeah. Have you ever had uh, punchki? Like the the I think it's Pol- a Polish tradition. Like mm. they're, they're basically just jelly donuts with powder on the outside. Um, but like on Fat Tuesday is when they eat them. Like just before Ash Wednesday. Never have like I ever seen them up here. But back when I was living back at home in uh, Michigan and Indiana, like they're everywhere when you go there. Fat, Tuesday, Fat Tuesday, just before Ash Wednesday. <laughs> As I know. Yeah, just, no, right, just, for, just, just for those of us on the call who aren't Catholic. Did you know. guys see that one thing that was like 
what happened to Biden's forehead? It looks like he got a bruise. Is our commander in chief <laughs> slipping? And it was literally just somebody like took a picture of him with the Ash Wednesday cross on his. I I saw a TikTok that was ranking Mark Wahlberg's uh, Ash Wednesday crosses from from like the Ash smudges from previous <laughs> years. Yeah, and, yeah, like, yeah. And it's like some of them are really good. Some of them are just like obviously somebody just rubbed one dot of ash in the middle uh-huh. of his forehead. Sometimes he it's tried just to do like it a himself. Broad, Simba swath and it's like this one gets a 7 out of 10 this one's very simple it's just a dark smudge 11 out of 10 in 2017 he was like no bro I got this I'll do it myself <laughs> don't even worry about it I'll just put it on myself say hello to your mother for me um, I similarly to that uh, Mark Wahlberg was interviewed uh, about something he was doing for Lent and the like the way the news was um, characterizing it was Mark Wahlberg's 40 day challenge <laughs> So somebody was like, we're rebranding Lent as Mark Wahlberg's 40 Day Challenge. Happy Easter, Xbox. Uh, yeah. Thank you very much for listening to Try Love. It's a literal rant of a podcast about I don't fucking know. You can find us on Twitter at Try Love Podcast. You can find the Trial on at Trial on Cinema and at Trilon.org. Get tickets and programming schedules and merch there or at the Trilon itself here in South Minneapolis. Uh, my name is Jason Daphnis. I am missing, and you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. Got your magnum? I'm Cody Narvison, and you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I have a sense of humor that doesn't translate to English. I'm Harry Mackin, and you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. Uh, today's film uh, is coming from a short series on the films of Wayne Wang playing at the Trilon. Go to Trilon.org or follow the link in the show notes to find out what movies are playing and when and catch them at the Trilon. Uh, you may have noticed somebody else is, is missing from this call. Uh, our dearly departed friend, Aaron Grossman is missing from this call. It feels like he'll never be back. Rest in peace. Given us for him being out. Yeah. Uh, so I am once again, filling in the gap at around five minutes as I take my timestamp to fill in for the patented Aaron Grossman summary. Uh, eventually I will overtake the patent. Uh, his, uh, license will lapse. I will be able to go Statute to the limitations and all that. Yep, yeah, exactly. That'll be added to the middle of like, your donut. Like once that little listing switches from live to dead, this whole thing is fucking mine and he's going to have to start paying me and I'm going to make bank because I know he can't stand to not do it when he's here. But for today, right now, we're going to be discussing the film Chan is Missing, a 1982 crime noir comedy, which I'm using all of those kind of broadly, but like talking about genre of how the story plays out, uh, directed by Chinese filmmaker Wayne Wang in his feature debut. It starts Wood Moy and uh, starts stars Wood Moy and Mark Hayashi as Joe and Steve, two Chinese American cab drivers on the hunt through San Francisco's Chinatown for their friend Chen, who took $4,000 from them to purchase a cab license before disappearing. Along the way, they uncover various clues as to Chen's whereabouts and his possible involvement in the death of a man during a clash between supporters of the People's Republic of China and Taiwan in the 80s. Following Joe and Steve, most excuse me, much of the movie consists of conversations with Chinatown residents and figures, each with their own perspective on who Chen really is. Each clue Joe and Steve undercover only deepens the mystery, uh, calling into question their very understanding of the man and of the Chinese-American experience at large. Uh, Chen is Missing was originally screened in April 1982 at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. Much praise for the movie com- comments on his blend of modern humor and noir tropes. The performances of Moi and Hayashi and its complex depictions of the struggles of American, excuse me, of Chinese American immigrants and their families to assimilate into American society in the Reagan years. It's widely considered to be the first narrative feature film made by an, an Asian American to be released theatrically and be positively received beyond the Asian American community. That is all the uh, tits and tats and stits and stats. $22,000 went into the making of this movie, a uh, pretty low budget, and it uh, shows in a really charming and effective way, I think. 
Uh, but I just wanted to toss to the group as we start. Um, I'm not as good at the handoff here as usually Aaron is, but uh, Harry, what did you think? This was your first time watching it, right? And you it saw was, it on yeah. Uh, first of all, a fine summary, Jason. It thank must you, be said, you. you are growing quite uh, good at the Aaron Grossman summary. Some Soon people to be are the saying Jason better Daffis than Grossman. Some summary. people are saying better than Aaron Grossman yeah. himself. So I, I'm, I'm hearing tell on the streets, I, it, but some people are saying. It's being said. You know, it's out there. Um, yeah, thanks for throwing to me. Um, I really, really liked this movie a lot. Um, I was very emotionally moved by it. Um, I think that of all of... I think that, like, it's... I mean, I think we're, we're going to talk a lot about how it's not really a crime story. It's not really a noir story, right? It's sort of almost an anti-mystery. It's sort of almost a lot of not really things. But what it is, is... um a really like moving and and i think like realized and mature depiction about um diaspora and about the not only the immigrant experience but also the lived experience of people who um are from different ethnic backgrounds that were born in america uh american born chinese abcs are both of these characters i believe i think um i know that our main character is and that's very important to his pers- his uh character joe i believe steve is too as the younger nephew i think is, it's implied yeah yeah and he's a vietnam veteran um and uh and like it manages to be both an extremely specific and in my mind it manages to both like make some really insightful remarks on what it was like to be chinese american in san francisco in 1982 which is a very particular place right because um san francisco had a huge asian american community and continues to and the history of san francisco um is and the history of asian americans in this country are very much interlinked and so when you're talking about san francisco you're talking about Asian Americans and and vice versa um, in some very particular ways. And also it makes this very universal and very um, affecting. And in my mind, sort of like empathy imbuing um, statement about what it feels like to be um, sort of a a person who walks in many different um, cross cultures and identities at once and is a little bit unmoored and disjointed and feels out of place in all of them right like i think that that joe is so compelled by chan and chan's story because he himself sort of feels that he is not really american not really chinese and kind of not even really american born chinese right whatever that means there is um I think that that we were clowning on him a little bit, uh, right? But the the scholar Peter Fang, who who wrote about this, um, and and like you said so well in your summary, Jason, um, with every single person that they meet, this sort of like um, this myth of, of the sort of monolith of the Chinese American experience and identity is only further sort of fragmented, right? In ways that are both sort of like very um, beautiful in the sense that there really are as as many experiences as there are people, right, in this movie. Um, and there is no one Chinese American experience or no one Chinese American identity, but also frustrating, right? In that none of these people even have any sort of like common framework for what it means to be Chinese or what it means to be Chinese American. They are sort of uh, these very complex, contradictory, fragmented portraits of these things, and they all have different, very different opinions and relationships to those things. Some of which are are very heartbreaking, and some of which are very, um, 
like compelling or very uh, heartening, right? So I think that this movie manages through this sort of like story as catalyst to create this portrait of a very complicated um, identity and and placement in time and history and in country. And it does it like in this way that makes it so um, possible to not only sort of like understand intellectually, but also emotionally feel, right? Like I felt Joe's sort of sense of disjointment and a uh, sense of uh, sort of like lack of Resolu- resolution or understanding of his own context and therefore what is happening around him, right? It it creates this really great, very sort of like classically noir feeling that is also very informed and very true to life, I think. So I just like, I was really, really deeply impressed by this movie um, and uh, really can't wait to watch it again, I guess. Yeah, um, really great characterization of this movie by both of you up to this point. Um, I this is my second time seeing this movie. The first time was actually off a recommendation of our good friend and former guest of the pod, Kyle Olson, a couple of years ago. Um, out of the blue, he just kind of shouted this out and just like threw this out as, hey, like maybe something worth checking out. Um, and I watched it and I intention- kind of intentionally went in blind, not really knowing much other than the very basic premise of they're looking for some- the, the main character characters are looking for somebody and they're also like try like it's also an examination of identity um you know as an immigrant and and you know an entire like subculture and not sub like subgroup of a uh, you know population of a very important city in a very important time and place and as is to be expected a lot of that certainly went over my head my mileage certainly varies um i've got a very different um experience as we all do and i promise we won't hammer that on the head too much um but all that is to say i really came away um, like appreciating the the mess, I was very there for the mess that they that we as viewers sort of found ourselves upon in putting a, a fine point on what like what this particular identity means. It's not something that can be s- summarized really easily. Um, and everything that I liked the first time around, I liked so much more this time around. Just I, I think maybe coming in with a being a little more prepared. I, like I think this movie is probably kind of a masterpiece um it's I, I think it's i think it's really incredible the um um yeah i the the idea of us being able like us and the characters in this movie anybody being able to to kind of learn from learn from the misfires like learn from what like what learning from what we don't learn like that can still like if you're like you're i don't know that this is uh, stupid but like if you're pl- like you're playing battleship um you know you miss and like you 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 don't get the hit that you want but at the very least you know that like the location of the ship is not here like you like knowing what it's not is knowing what something isn't or knowing where something isn't knowing who you are not knowing how your mileage uh or your experience is different from even somebody who it is like it, all the all the interviews all the chats that these um that joe and steve have with with people even between joe and steve the fact that there is this this certain um generational divide where joe seems to be willing to extend much more empathy to to people um to to chan in this situation than somebody like steve whose whose entry point was a little bit different and his um kind of tenure in in this particular time and place is is a little bit different like all of that is important even if it doesn't put you know even the fact that we can just kind of gaze out at the, at the water by the end of it and just say, this is what we don't know, but that's still like, 
the fact that we don't know this much is is as important as it is for us to know like where like where Chan is, and it it does almost feel like a a, a very intentional punchline and i'm sure it was to a certain point but that the fact that the search for chan is almost exclusively done over voiceover by the end of it like there are certain there are, there are certain like three to five minute stretches where it's just like yep um yeah, he he's not here uh i mean even just the one at the end but like oh yeah we got the money and like it's all you know we don't know where he is but like we we made contact with him um just yeah go ahead and uh right. and it, it must be said right like um voiceover like shot or against like some of the most seemingly unsimulated and just like staggeringly like almost emotionally overwhelmingly beautiful shots of like chinatown in 1982 in san francisco in black and white right like in addition to everything else that this movie is doing it's also like literally a cultural document in that like i i want to see san francisco in 1982 looking the way that this one does right and so like yeah. i i think that like sometimes um voiceover can be pejorative right but i think it works really well and it suits the the trappings of this movie really well sorry to to interrupt you jason i just wanted to get that in real quick yeah good grief give me a gif am i right no uh but you are right about so many other points that you brought up in this movie about um like th there are two bigger distinct ideas I, I, I kind of want to delve into here, but I think the first one is, is going to be, um, is going to be like lead us on more of a, 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 like pointed direction here. And it's like, both of you talked about how, because this movie is like kind of centered around conversations with people and sort of like those individual vertical slices of an entire identity that, which at this point there's a whole, there's a whole, um, I forget which character it is, but like, uh, I think it might be between Joe and Steve talking about like, even in their generational differences, what there's probably 20, 30 years between them, uh, and about how like they two, both of them see that same experience completely differently. Um, uh, being a, a, a Chinese American being, you know, whether they were both, both born here or just one, but, um, because they have, because that is the like mechanics with which we learn about this thing. Um, there is like an intentional and very, I think, effective lack of, uh, uh, of, well, let's get to the momentum and sort of like the, the, the mild jankiness, the very, uh, like, it feels very much like a directorial debut. I'm thinking delving into my second idea by accident here. First, I wanted to highlight the, like those individual various perspectives that we get from all those like distinct characters are, I think really the only way that this story could be particularly told if it had more of a like singular minded, like we're going to follow Joe and Steve as they do X, Y, and Z and find out X, Y, you know, A, B, and C and, and, and get there. Like it would not have that same pull, that same message of like, we've got uh, just uh, while I was watching, I was just pulling out characters that stuck out to me. I mean, it's very light in how it presents some of these characters and very like jovial and very character driven. Um, but you've got like one of the first that stuck, that struck me that I wasn't expecting this movie was the academic that's talking to them about like, uh, basically, uh, how Asian Americans communicate versus how white Americans communicate with police. And Dude, that's kind of that scene, charged that thing first to scene is and so like, fucking good. It is really in, like, it's, it's wonderful, like incredibly directed, incredibly written. Um, but like, it's just one of these, and then you realize it's just one of all of these different perspectives and like the ways that people approach this same topic. Like how would this person have moved through space? Where, what are their whereabouts? Uh, how would their experience as a Chinese American have impacted where they might've gone? That kind of thing. Everybody comments on that person's opinion on going back to the homeland on going back where they, you know, going back overseas and all this kind of stuff. But you've got the academic sort of breaking it down in a very erudite, like almost uselessly. It's a very pointed, like it keeps cutting back to Joe and Steve where they're like 
getting tired and putting their heads in their hands. They're like, you're basically trying to say that, say that, that, you know, he got through a traffic stop. Right. And, and this woman is just really, really yeah, going well, and getting very like, uh, academic with it. It also is like one of the, the movie's first and most perfect jokes, right? Is that she, she is like, well, in, in Chinese speakers, they tend to, they tend to convey all of this sort of like, uh, um, information that maybe doesn't have a direct sort of like uh, relationship to what they're trying to tell uh, into anybody's mind except for their own, but they'll come around to it eventually. And it's just sort of like establishing their character and their expertise in the eyes. And it's like you realize at, at a certain point that she's doing what she's describing. <laughs> Mm-hmm. uh but i know it, it's so it was... it's and like that that sort of humor is like found throughout this right we're like yes it does such a great job and and probably again not to be too sort of like this isn't my place to say but like the movie does such a great job of like treating these people both with the proper respect but without sort of like reverence right yes. like i think yes that, I, that it that... it does such a great job in particular of sort of like um interrogating the concept of a Chinatown in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. Which is like so part and parcel to this movie's ideas about identity, which is that like Chinatowns and like little like ethnic like enclaves within cities are sort of a weird thing, right? And Mm -hmm. they're kind of a gross thing in some ways, right? And like the movie interrogates that directly where they're like, yeah, like we're all just like, Americans living here, but like, right? Uh, like, I used to be—I literally created like a word processor in China, uh, and was considered like a genius. But mm-hmm. here, like, the only job I can get is to work in Chinese restaurants. And right. Like, there, the only, yeah, the only way we const- go ahead. I was just going to say, there's like that constant. I mean, commenting exactly what you were saying. There's that constant, like, there uh, occasionally, like, key points. There'll be just shots that seem random, but like actually have some sort of narrative meaning to them of like the commercialized centers of Chinatown of like right. a movie poster for a new Chinese high fantasy film like, or that's... like, you know, like discount sale, like in a Chinese store, in a Chinese American storefront. Like it's very pointedly get connecting right. that idea of, I mean, I guess that's where I was going by even bringing up the characters because they're all so distinct and because they all like just reek of a really well-written character. And again, we can comment on this. They all kind of seem half improv, which is really charming and yes. very effective. They feel like real people, but like, just when you think about the panoply of characters, and I'm not going to be able to touch on them all, but the academic uh, Henry the Cook, the coolest motherfucker in Chinatown. Dude, oh my god! Um, <laughs> Steve alone, I think, is like really obviously Joe, our main character, is really just compelling and uh, and just at, like it sounds very infantilizing and very like othering, but very fun to watch these characters. They just seem to be having like a good time making this movie. Um, each of them is like their own unique, different perspective on Chan. They each use Chan as like this actual person of Chan as like a vector for their own subjective opinion on the Chinese American experience. And what the movie does with those is it shows how they're all equally valid. Nobody has like nothing to offer, but nobody has the answer. Uh, They're all equally worthy of attention and consideration. Even the people who are like, you know, sort of siding on like the PRC, even with people who are not necessarily part like with, uh, you know, taking up the banner of one side or the other. Uh, But they're all underpinned if not directly and like explicitly at least sub uh subtextually they're all being like shown as being steamrolled by that like imposition of american ideas of assimilation yes like fact, okay like you said, yes that they're being squeezed into a chinatown that they like they have to be like i think henry's introductory scene where he's talking about wonton soup and uh like what the tourists all order is a great example of right that. like he probably he has charisma out the ass. He's a very like apparently he looks like a very good cook. He 
drinks milk and smokes cigarettes on the job again and sings fly me to the moon instead of fly me to the moon while he's cooking yeah it's so good uh but like that character and that whole idea of using characters like that in that way was telling me like oh this movie is not just like hey look at all these fun characters and they're all sort of like everybody makes up a big old rainbow of what it means to be chinese american it is literally saying like Look at how this how beautiful and vibrant this community is. Look at how beautiful and vibrant this lifestyle or excuse me, this life experience can be and sort of what it can add to even a basic story like this. And look at how it's everybody's being relegated to this very like specific one idea. Like it comments and, on that a few times specifically toward and the end. That one idea is like a like through the looking glass, like kitsch capitalist version of a culture that yes. that uh these characters have both never been a part of and have always had imposed on them, right? Yes, and they've so, always like, been under the heel of it somehow. Yeah. There is this really incredible, strange relationship that ABC's American-born Chinese have where they don't know Chinese culture really because they weren't brought up in it. They've only ever known the Chinatown sort of commodified version, the capitalist version of Chinese culture, whatever that is. And so they have this strange relationship to it where it's like, this isn't really my culture. And this culture is sort of like embarrassing. And I don't know why I'm associated with it, but also like I do have some pride in it as sort of an identity. And it's about sort of like reckoning with that. And we get to see all of these characters relationships with that without it ever being sort of like made explicitly textual just because of the way that this story unfolds. Right. And it's so brilliant the way it uses the trapping of the noir to do that. Um, it, it's really, really something I like, I don't, I can't think of a single white character in this, but I think it's one of the most effective movies about racism and about, um, the, the practice of sort of like the evils of cultural assimilation or, or good point. the lack yeah. of assimilation, assimilization that I've ever seen. Right. Like, I think that like it does, all of this is just part of the lived experience of these people, right? Because like we understand without them having to say it that like fundamentally their existence is um, not defined by, but but in large part dictated by um, their relationship to a prevailing culture that wants to subjugate and uh, marginalize them. Totally. Um, with regards to all of the characters that we come across, um, I've, forget who said it maybe you both did um the the i don't know the way in which their their conversations are are used and how this movie dabbles in like noir um conventions is is really cool and we can definitely talk about that in a bit i i certainly want to but one thing that i i really liked um uh, about all of these different conversations and i didn't really think about it so much in retrospect more so just thinking about it now in which san francisco almost plays as as like something of a Casablanca-esque scenario where like it's a place where um, it, it, in a lot of cases, I, I think, or I don't know, maybe maybe the, not to generalize, but it, it seems like a place where people want to be, like people want to come to America. Maybe, maybe they just happen to end up in San Francisco, but it, it's not necessarily like the actual, you know, titular Casablanca where People are trapped. It's nearly impossible to get out with without some sort of um, divine, aka like governmental uh, intervention, to like let you out. Um, whereas in in the world of of Chan is missing, just with with a, a sum of cash, like you could leave and go back home. Chances are you like probably wouldn't come back, or, or I don't know. They, they laid that out in a few different ways. Um, so it got me thinking about that, and it got me thinking about how um, I forget which conversation it was with one of these characters, but. 
um, out of all of the rich I like concepts that are brought up the sort of you're you're damned if you do assimilate into white america and you're damned if you don't um it's just oh, and, yeah, and, then, yeah, yeah. and then like coming across all these characters like these characters are are different results of like things that stuck essentially like um henry the the restaurant owner him being so charismatic him like being the type of person who can tell you uh hey, wanton more like not now and like you still want to like <laughs> give him your money and, and eat it eat at his place and like he's um like his version of success is different from from somebody else's um i think it was the um it might have oh i forget who it was I, it might have been the, like the language class uh guy george who brought up the the idea of or no maybe it was the last guy they talked to the cultural center who brought up the idea of just like yeah like open uh, an apple pie shop and just like use like put your own sort of spin on it based on like baking techniques and and things like that from you know, from your your home country and like uh, on its face that is you know it's a good idea there are also <laughs> inevitably people who would resent a shop like that for um besmirching the the sacred apple pie recipe that america was founded upon god damn it um but just like at the very least and that's Again, what, what's so great about this sort of like, we're just going to cast a wide net. We're going to engage with all of these like misfires because even if we don't find Chan or come across, you know, one of the, the sort of clues that Joe, um, um, kind of sardonically refers to just like, you know, typically this would be the spot where we come across a big clue, but there's never anything like that. But at the very least, there is like a story or two to tell. Um, and that's, I don't know, that's, that's, that's the real Chan is missing question mark <laughs> um and i yeah i'm really glad you brought that up and i, I really like that you're char characterizing it sort of as misfires because it should be said and like this was one of my favorite things about the movie um like this is not a didactic movie it's about as far from being didactic as possible right like i think that like it is descriptivist in its like very nature in that it's like this is like a depiction of something that feels very true we are not necessarily commenting on anything except to sort of like give you this understanding of how it feels to be this way and to be here and to have this identity and if you come to a bunch of conclusions um which how could you not then like that's great but like we're not this is not like a this is not an anti-racist movie except that it i mean it it's extremely effectively about that but that's not what it's doing right it's telling a story and it just so happens that it like very naturally does that and one of my favorite ways that it does that is um none of the characters in this movie i you could argue have what i would call quote unquote the right politics <laughs> right like the the right sort of like relation like whatever that means right like and and not that it's for me to judge but like everybody's relationship to asianness and to asian americanness and to china is very strained and sometimes in ways that are sort of heartbreaking right like they meet a character who is chinese who is racist against chinese people right and like or we meet the uh the very sort of like what i would describe as like liberal uh college professor right who's sort of like teaching this version of assimilationism that is like well-meaning but is actually like like you had noted cody like actually pretty demeaning to chinese people and pretty sort of like um, I don't want to use the loaded terminology, but it's like a little bit Uncle Tom like, right? Where it's sort of like, oh, like we have to like really sort of like try to be white and like try to sort of like hide our Asianness in order to be successful. Um, 
or there are there are other people who are like Steve and and Steve is one of my favorites, right? Who's just sort of frustrated that everybody cares so much about being Chinese, right? He's just sort of like, why like I don't want to like like everybody's always talking about how hard it is to like be Chinese and how like, oh, you used to you used to be a doctor or a dentist in the mainland and now that you're here, all you can do is work at a restaurant because nobody else will hire you. Big deal, fuck off, right? And like his his reactions are so like not correct right like they're they're so um self-serving and sort of like brusque and uh unfair but they are also like completely understandable within the framework of of him and like very human right in that he's mm-hmm. like he's a character who like very clearly wants to be black right like somebody asks him at one point like what do you think you're richard Pryor or something right and he yeah. code switches when he's talking to young asian women to try to look cool and sound cool and like he went to vietnam and so like he has he has like friends who aren't asian um and like even that sort of like satirical uh like version of this is treated with gravity and understanding right like i think that at no point did i not at least was i not at least able to empathize with why these people ha- were occupying the positions they were occupying even though the whole point of the movie is you can't fully understand them right like yeah, that's yeah. that's joe's thing is that he's like we'll never actually know who chan was like well it's it's like it makes me think that like you were saying that the right politics are the wrong politics etc it's like you you don't you see these people and you must consider the conditions that like sort of scare quotes made them you know like you think and and then it ties back directly to i think it was henry was talking to when he's in his suit up on the roof with uh with joe and he's sort of talking about like how nobody feels connected to the place they were from before. It's, you know, 800 or more miles away. It's, it's a, like, it's incredibly far away. You have not been there. You have not thought like all that you get is information uh, through various vectors and various filters to learn even what's going on. And, and the place. only, the only relationship you have to it again is this like weird anti-history, right? Where it's like, yeah. Oh, like we know a, a kitschy sort of like capitalist salesman's version of China. That's all the China we've ever known who knows if that's true we get the feeling it's not uh and we certainly don't want that to be like our whole history but we don't have anything else to pull from right and so there is Mm -hmm. this weird sort of like um attraction repulsion matrix working in all of these people where it's sort of like i know that i'm asian american and like i want to be uh proud of that but also like i I don't want it to mean what it clearly means to these people i don't want to be sort of like defined by it um it's a Again, like it doesn't say any of that. This is just a lived experience that the movie yes. just demonstrates like so, so effectively. And I, I love it's what makes me one of the things. My other point here was that one of the things that uh, many I mean, this has only received some, I guess, real critical appraisal over the last few years, because I think the Criterion Collection issued it as a Blu-ray and put it on the collection um, and sort of it's gotten some play in recent years. But from the 82 until when it uh, has recently sort of gathered more steam, it was kind of a considered a cult movie. I guess it's not still, you know, mainstream, but in the limited critical appraisal that it's really gotten like serious critical appraisal, a lot of it relies on. Uh, sort of throwaway phrase to me anyway, like in reviews I was reading and sort of essays that I was seeing, a lot of it relies on like, you just got to accept bits of the mystery. Like some things won't be answered. And that to me screams like we are that that most, the most people watch this movie thinking I want that prescriptive take on like, I want some direct momentum. I want the promise of an answer. I want X, Y, Z and not seeing that like, Oh, the fact that it doesn't have a clear answer, the fact that there is ambiguity, then that's 
part and parcel like that is the experience of watching this movie right like from the get you don't have a feeling that, and this is where i was coming into the word momentum and jankiness earlier is like you do it's very clear from the beginning they're probably not going to find chan because you can't imagine these two guys you know, love and life and getting in friendly arguments about things. You cannot imagine them confronting something like, you know, to asking their cabbie friend guy for $4,000 um, back. Those right. are very clear. Like, yeah. And it's, as it's established immediately, they know almost nothing about him. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Exactly. It's, it's like, and despite that, the that, fact that like, they are like quote unquote business partners and like maybe, maybe even one of the, the big racisms that the movie takes on early is that they all should know each other. It like, it turns out that yeah. like Chan is just like, he he has like a Laura Palmer level complicated life uh, <laughs> as noir protagonists often do. Right. Or noir sort of like uh, locuses of, of storytelling. And uh, they don't have any resources to like find this guy. Right. Yeah. They have no idea where he is or why he left. All they know is he has four thousand of their dollars and like that's it. Yeah, it's it really like the ideas that I'm trying to connect with that are like, there is that descriptive, not, I think you broke it down pretty well, Harry, when you said there's no prescribing here of that end state of like what quote unquote, like again, scare quotes, these people are like per se. It's like, just look at them and draw conclusions. Look at these tiny vertical slices and know that there are a hundred thousand more in like a six block radius and that all of them will change the, your very concept of like what it means to be Chinese American in the eighties anyway. And I'm, I don't know how much has really changed about like how it feels to be that in, in, you know, in, in the 40 years since, but um, that I think marries really well against how it's made about against like, again, it, there are whole scenes where people appear to be like laughing at their lines and like uncomfortable in front of the camera and very clearly like, I won't say amateurish, but at best sophomoric takes on how to how to make a movie right. That just bring that home a lot cleaner to me. Not cleaner, but a lot clearer of like there is no, uh, you know, described excuse me prescribed end idea of what this movie will be of like where you're going to end up of having the answer you're looking for of like oh you know Chan was. Uh, he was at, he was, you know, the CIA was after him because he took a photo of some whatever, or like, you know, the PRC sent, you expect like it, it evokes all these ideas it and it's so noir, dude. Right. It, but, it's but so rad. Yeah. At the same time. And it's, and it is really cool. Like those, the things that it's touching on and like the shot of the picture that they take off the wall with the four pieces of tape, iconic, very compelling. But then you come back to them, you know, sitting next to their car shooting the shit or driving and heading to the next like old seniors center to find find where Chan may have gone. And you're like, oh, they're never going to get there. The whole point of this is to just meet another person, learn another like, again, vertical slice, another line in the notebook. And then we move on to learn more and we move on to learn more. And, and like you were saying, Harry, or excuse me, Cody, like the more you learn, the less you have learned, the less you know about it. Uh, like you know with each piece of information you uncover that you're not going to get to that prescribed thing so when i hear feedback and critical appraisal that's like you just got to be willing to accept the mystery i think of that i think that when i'm watching like very confusing surrealist cinema not this pretty fun slightly documentarian funny funny uh you know half noir but uh very like culturally like important piece that is very tight 71 minutes and never promises a real answer. I don't, I guess I, that, that chafes me a little bit when I was looking this movie up after watching it, that people were like, there's a little bit of this that's going to like, it's going to cause some friction. And I'm like, this wasn't, this was a pretty smooth, like concise. I don't think it was run on. I think it was tight and narratively like pretty well fleshed out. And the point of it is that there's no conclusion per se, that like the conclusion you've come to is all that you've like, remember the people you were talking about. 
Remember the people you talked to. That is the conclusion that we're going to let you draw here with this movie. Yeah, um, really well said. I think if I were to throw a lifeline out to the folks who warn viewers of like, hey, just so you know, like there are uneasy waters ahead um, or just like there there might be some friction. And I'm, I'm also partially trying to recall like what like I didn't have any negative feelings about this movie the first time I saw it. It, it maybe just like the things that worked didn't work quite to the extent that they do now. Everything's just kind of, you know, exacerbated and, and, and multiplied. The the fact that there is an obvious noir overtone almost purports that there will be some kind of resolution or at least more of a mm. resolution than we end up getting. Whereas I think with how the those techniques are deployed, it, it almost perpetuates the opposite. Um, just uh, like sp- thinking about things like it, it is shot and excuse me, it is shot in, uh, or it, it, it shot in black and white. Presume, I guess I don't know too much about it, whether it was, I, I sort of assume it was shot in black and white. I guess, I guess I'm not certain. Um, but there is black and white yeah, photography. I so. I heard yeah. 16 millimeter, maybe. I'm it really, sure. it really looks that like, makes sense. right? It, it really yeah. does not look like a movie that was shot in color and then made black and white. But again, I don't yeah. know anything about anything. So you, who knows? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean that that would that would make sense to me. It wouldn't make sense necessarily for it to go um, the mank route, where it, it films uh, film scenes that very clearly should be, like stay in color. It's like, nope, we're gonna feed into the gimmick the, and go in black and white. The world famous mank route. God, what a one of the worst fucking looking movies had, I've ever I seen. If I had a dollar, yeah, uh, I'll I'll give you one, big guy. Um, boy oh boy okay getting off stank um but yeah so it is it is in black and white um there's uh there there's that one sort of uh that paranoia sequence with with joe kind of looking over his shoulder and it's it's cut differently from Mm -hmm. the rest of the movie and that almost felt like an obligatory sort of like there's a development of there's there's this other woman and he get he gets a phone call telling him to like not ask further questions and then it's just a couple minutes where he's just kind of walking around seemingly trying to to avoid someone or something it doesn't really amount to anything but it but it's there um it's not like weaponized for anything in in particular there are a lot of a lot of conversations obviously with, with really fascinating and vibrant characters um and some of them are shot more in the classic not even like shot reverse shot but like cutting between the two sides but a lot of them are really just really Again, vibrant conversations. You see both of them, or they're talking very casually. You're you're finding out information with multiple voices, kind of talking over one another, um, and and like getting getting information, and, and it's sort of like unconventional. Again, based off of like noir genre trappings. But then, in my mind, the one that sticks out the most is the narration, where narration definitely has uh, its purpose in noir. In this, it almost accomplishes too much that one sequence i was trying to think about earlier i found in my notes there's that one um in in one voiceover joe um asserts the following that he will that he ate dinner um and that he uses his stove to like store electronics that was kind of funny um he yeah. uh he, Same. he cleaned yeah got a big kick out of that uh he cleaned out chance car he found uh not just a, a letter but also a gun and he, he um has been in talks with the old man separately um, that that Chan was talking with. And the old man said he doesn't know where Chan is, but Chan was not involved with the murder. And he makes some comments about the, the flag wave waving picture being in the paper, maybe to take the heat off of something or other, just like all of that is in one like couple minute voiceover 
mm-hmm. counter that with all like everything else we're doing like comparatively speaking these guys are just kind of dicking around um obviously <laughs> there, there's a completely other um subplot to the movie where like we're getting uh, everything that we've been talking about up to this point those conversations are, are very important they do not directly feed into chan being missing in the way that the narration does but it's again not quite a punchline but it almost feels like a punchline when you when you talk about it um and that that's kind of what i mean with uh like all of the ways in which the the noir sort of tropes they are they are serving a specific purpose but it's it's almost to to feed into this idea of like a, a not quite like we're, we're not quite at the part of the point of like neo-noirs or, or anti-noir but it is trying something there like very distinctly mm-hmm. i would think um what do you think harry i'm really glad you brought this up because um i well i have a lot to, to say but first on like a metatextual level i just love that like i i think a lot of people talk about how this is a debut movie i have um your mileage may vary with that whatever it means to be a debut movie whatever it means to have the hallmarks of a debut one thing i do love though is that when we get to scenes like that um paranoia scene which bears little relation to the rest of the story ultimately uh very clearly wayne wang was just like i want to make like a noir movie and i want to set a big paranoid sequence in the middle of it and like metatextually i love that he is like a character in this movie right it's like this movie is so full of these like three-dimensional iconoclasts who have like like weird fun interests that they're pursuing and he's like you know what? Like I'm an Asian American filmmaker. What's the first movie I want to do? Oh, I want to like set a weird noir story in Chinatown in San Francisco with my friends. Right. It's like, Oh man, like it's so humanizing and heartening that these were the choices. Um, and I agree with you, Cody. There are some places where the the noir trapping sort of like um, they feel in a movie that is so otherwise naturalistic a little bit put upon. Um, I think that the the smoking gun example is a really good example, especially because the movie itself lampshades that that trope later in the movie. Where later on in narration, Joe is like, "Well, if this were some kind of mystery story, this is where a big fat clue would drop into my lap." And I'm like, "Bro, you can't say that. That ha- a literal smoking gun dropped into your lap." two scenes ago right so like you know your mileage may vary with that sort of stuff but like like in the in the broader sort of thematic sense right like choosing a noir story to sort of like address these these ideas about fragmentation of identity and history and um what we don't know and will never know and the sort of like the vast gulf between the sort of individual or the affected sort of like person and the state and the sort of macro history like it's so perfect that that the noir was was set here and that he chose these trappings and i can't believe how well it both like suits the idea of this movie right which is you know basically that like it wants to portray how the immigrant experience or the experience of an ethnic minority in a state that is not their own is uh, is to sort of like be severed from your understanding of self via history and via uh, monoculture and via um, things that other ethnic majorities never have to think about and take for granted, right? And it creates this this world where you cannot 
you have simultaneously a deeper understanding of the people around you and uh, there are parts of them that you will never be able to access the same way, right? And Chan sort of like symbolizes that. And like, what a brilliant idea for a noir, right? Like, like Chan is like such a perfect sort of object of mystery, in that way, um, in in the way that he symbolizes that, the same way that like a femme fatale would, or the same way like another mystery character would in another noir, but it it gives it it imbues it with all of this um, this subject matter that is that is um, very particular to the immigrant experience, and it sort of gives me a way in, right? Where like through the noir trappings, I can understand this feeling a little bit better, um, and I really, really love how it does that. Um, it, I just think that like that's such a great uh, idea for a movie that even if it wasn't pulled off as well as it was, I would still be deeply compelled by it, right? Mm-hmm. I think there's something to be said for uh, like tying all of that together. Cody's uh, point about like how sometimes it occasionally feels, and Harry, you harped on this too, um, about like how it it occasionally feels like it it is somewhat put upon a little bit too much of the monologue thing. To me, that like rang really effectively, I guess, because again, there was like this whole idea that from the get you're not really good like i didn't i was under a presupposition that we were going to solve the mystery even though like the noir tropes were there even if that we had like uh, feet on the beat type like the scoring and the shooting and everything kind of makes it seem like there is noir going on like the whole the the structure of it is going to be noir we're going to learn little bits we're going to uncover something that that is going to eventually come to bite us we're never going to get the full story there's something you know bigger at play kind of thing all those trappings of noir but the monologues really do set it like very plain almost throughout like joe's increasing doubt about his ability to find chan uh, is is vocalized through lines where he's like i don't know if i'll be able to f-. like nobody see or seems to know like everything i learn makes me think of chan differently and because i think of chan differently i think of myself differently it's not that like everybody had these different ideas of chan it's that it's making me know him less you know and it's just like the very I guess the character didn't feel like Joe feels like because of that, he feels like one of the less real characters, but still very effectively. Like I don't even, I hesitate to say audience stand in because this character, like it's sort of half his story is realizing, or excuse me, half of the story is just him realizing that like the Chinese American experience is not maybe what he had been conceptualizing or he hadn't really know how to, how to process or think about all of these different things until he saw it like, uh, uh, personified in somebody else that he was looking for like that he had something to pursue therefore he could find it um but i found it like pretty effective and concise and, and buttoned down despite like the ambiguity that's why like i feel that friction that that uh tense like taught um i guess that discomfort with the idea that there's like sort of a, a tantalizing mystery or something to uncover in this movie because i think it all is uncovered for you by the end and the uncovered thing like the calcified thing that you've gotten to is like there is no answer there like not be comfortable with that answer it's like that is the answer i guess i don't know how well i'm explaining it but it's just yeah like, I, I felt really good about it while watching it and i'm like oh everybody must have this same feeling of like we really said something wise and intelligent and like well thought out about not just the Chinese American experience, but specifically, Jesus, specifically using that as a vector, but like broadly any like subculture that is underneath um, an American uh, like imposed assimilation order must feel at least to some degree like this. And then I read things that are like, 
Richard Linklater presenting it at the Austin Film Society is like, just be ready for a lot of unanswered questions, guys. And I'm like, what the fuck are you people talking about? That is like, that is the, anyway, I just got upset. One other thing that I really like that I think the narration accomplishes very well, and I don't mean to be cynical to the point of almost being condescending, but like I think it's really important to depict how much of this story happens in Joe's head um, and how much he's worrying about it and how much he's thinking about it and how much he is connecting the dots of this particular case upward toward more universal macro sort of like historical macro cultural phenomenons that are playing out to juxtapose how very, very little most people are doing that and how very little especially the macro culture that he is a part of gives a shit about any of this um i think that that stories like this which are so important right like capital i important like american stories like this one of the other big things that they do and that i think was absolutely wayne wang's uh intent even though it's never directly stated is that it demonstrates how undertold this story is right and how like like the white people in this story don't care about these people they don't care about these stories they don't care about i mean there is this incredible lack of curiosity right where like even the there's a shooting that happens and nobody can be arsed to care about it right to sort of like understand or unpack the politics at play there at understand and unpack like what could have compelled this 78 year old man to shoot this other man through because they're just like oh that's just some like complex disagreement about chinese politics like we don't have to care about it the the a plot of this movie is largely that they can't go to the cops because they know the cops won't give a shit and because quote uh i think it's um there there are probably three chans missing uh or on the missing persons board on any given day unquote right it's just like so i really like this narration that sort of like um, it's it's really important to give voice to the real considerations, the lived considerations of these people that are also totally invisible to a culture that yeah. is uninterested in them, right? And so, like, we get this. This is a um, subcultural movie in the truest sense, right? That in that it like it slices open this vertical of. Um, thought and consideration and identity and values that we might not have been able to see otherwise, but that is extremely important and had always been there and affects and touches everything just as it is affected and touched mm-hmm. by everything, right? So it it does a, a really great job of of doing that. Um, I guess my my last like thing is just a a littler filmic comment, but um, Cody, you brought up that like a bunch of the different prominent scenes in this movie are um, there's overlapping audio. Sometimes there is two different conversations happening at once. Sometimes there's a conversation in music. Sometimes there's a conversation and music and narration that is all happening at once that are given like almost equal audio weight pointedly. Right. Um, like maybe a a basic sort of point to go out on, but like, even if this movie wasn't accomplishing everything else, that's like such an effective way to like, think about communication breakdown, especially like when it's, explicitly framed in like the first scene where she's like oh well you have to understand that there is like this linguistic barrier between chinese people and american people even if we speak the same language because we use language differently and then like throughout this movie we are bombarded with 
visual or audio information in such a way that makes it difficult to parse. It's like, yes. come on. Like, it's such a great filmmaking. Like, this really, is, in addition it, to, like, the deeply humanist and, um, like, important work that this movie is doing as, like, literal cultural historical document, right? Uh, like, I think it's in the um, the film like register the what is that called that um the national film registry and it should be right like it is culturally and aesthetically important it's also a fucking great movie like they did he did a really really fucking bang up job with this one um and like i i'm really really impressed by that me too and specifically to your point about uh like the overlapping audio and the sort of like almost uh unparsable nature of some of these scenes, despite it all being well, most of it being in English and most of it happening with, uh, with some like balance of audio. Uh, I found on Wikipedia that during an interview for another movie that Wayne Wang made, he talked about why there are no subtitles in this movie specifically it was released with no subtitles. Like for, I, I don't know what that says about the accessibility of this movie to people who cannot hear, but uh, he says that I didn't want subtitles because the audience should experience what those two are experiencing. Those two being Joe and Steve are experiencing and not have any more information yet. You could still understand. Sometimes the specifics of language are not as important as the music of the language and the body language of the language, which I Man. thought like, is pretty much exactly like, I think you're picking up exactly on what he wanted. Yeah. I mean, he's like a genius, you. right? That's some genius level shit. He was, That's he was laying down there. I, you're probably right about accessibility, unfortunately, but I do love that he even like straight up, frames it up right because it the beginning of this movie does have subtitles there's one mm-hmm. instance of subtitles in the unsubtitled version and it's a chinese song that's playing on the radio right right and, and then it's, I think- it's a chinese song that's like about a very american experience yes. of inflation <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a uh, god watching that in 2023 yeah uh, but yeah like specifically to that scene where i was talking about it because i would like to get the music um the scene where joe visits i believe it's one of chan maybe chan's former wife i'm forgetting the specifics is it if it's his wife or just the woman he was seeing and her daughter and her daughter yeah, goes upstairs his, and starts- that's his wife and then he was having an affair with another woman whom we never see but there we go. i believe that 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 woman who is uh like pretty well to do and offers them mandarin oranges right mm-hmm. i believe that's his wife Okay. And yeah, the, she's, the mother of his daughter. And and his daughter is upstairs playing music and just like starts in the middle of their conversation and she tells her to turn it down. She doesn't. And the scene just kind of goes on. You're just following like how they are interacting with each other until finally the music eventually stops and you start learning things. But you're just like it, it didn't it didn't feel accidental. It didn't feel like, oh, it's supposed to be emphasizing Jenny's like sort of uh, puerile teenagerhood. It's like, oh, this is the point of the scene is that you're not going to be able to follow their whole conversation. And yet you're still going to need to know what the dynamics were here, what how the movie the story is actually moving. I I fucking love I mean, that. What a- right. And, and also, like, I would even argue, and, and maybe, again, this is like a pr- predominantly white perspective, but, like, I think it's important to hear Joe's accent, right? Like, to struggle yeah. to understand at times, like, this is a person speaking with a Chinese accent, right? Like, mm. all of these characters have pronounced accents. All of Joe's dialogue in narration is delivered with his accent, right? Like, that is his yeah. natural voice, the voice of an ABC, a, a Chinese-American person. And, like, I think that, like... Struggling to understand that uh, at times is like important to this movie, which is all about the struggle and failure sometimes to understand things that are the sort of amalgamation of many different cultures intersecting, right? It's like it's perfect for that as well. 
It's really beautiful. Um, and what a choice to make as far as making the movie. Uh, there are a lot of other choices made in this movie, and a lot of them are, have to do with how the movie looks. Yeah, that's how I'm transitioning to good grief, give me a gif, fellas. Uh, this is the section where we talk about what shots from the movie may or should be uh, the gifts that accompany the tweet that goes out with this episode. So, Cody, I will tap you first on this. Are there any shots that stuck out to you as ones that could be great with some sort of central action or whatever uh, criteria you define this by? Yeah, absolutely, positively. Um, mm. The one I, I think both of, I'll give two quick ones. I think they've both been shouted out uh, earlier, which which is great. That's called foreshadowing in the biz. <gasps> um, but one, uh, it's towards the end, the hour seven minutes, and then like thirty five seconds. It's Joe and Steve in the car, and it's it's brief. And so this alone might not make for a great gif, but them parked in the lot and the Golden Gate Bridge is just above them in the background. Ooh. It it does immediately after that cut to just like water, um, which we spend a lot of time looking at at the end where we're hearing Joe's. He's just like, you know, in, in the end, like we didn't find out these things, but we did find out these things. And just like, I'm, I'm oversimplifying it. It's a really good mo- monologue, a really good narration. Um, and like looking at, just like water, which is somehow nothing, but also everything visually was like a really good accompaniment to that. Uh, the other one I'll throw out, I have 340 in my notes, but I think I forgot. It's either 3340 or 4340. It's, um, it is that, that tangerine scene that just specifically when they're eating, like they're peeling apart the tangerine. So close up on the fruit as well as the hands, um, mm-hmm. as it representing good luck and it being sort of, you know, a, a mid movie treat was sort of, um, it was sort of nice and sweet, but also, hey, uh, they're peeling back layers of this, uh, this little <gasps> mystery of theirs. Um, so that's, uh, I, I thought that was nice. Um, those are my two for consideration. Oh man, those are great ones. Uh, honestly, the first one that came to my mind and maybe it would make for a boring GIF, but like, I love the, the water, right? Like there, we're just like a still water shot for like two minutes or something. It really is beautiful. Um, yeah, it's, it's great. Uh, I just, um, what's the, the name of the cook Henry. again? What's that? Henry, the cook Henry, with the yeah. uh, samurai. He's like, uh, yeah, samurai night fever. Um, <laughs> he's so charismatic. Like I, the that whole scene where where he's working behind the counter uh, in the the Chinese restaurant, and like he keeps like mugging for the camera or like turning around to like make a point and sort of like thrusts his uh, like ladle at the camera or something. That's he's amazing the fucking stuff. prom king. He's yeah, so he's good. so good. He's so <laughs> handsome and like yeah, it's it's hilarious. Um, uh, or just, I, I think any uh, number of the shots in the paranoia sequence would be really, really good. Um, for sure. Yeah. So uh, any of those would, would work really well for me. I really like the one. I think it's right after Joe and Steve. It might be after they have an argument about whether or not they go to the police. It's some at some point where like right before this shot, they were in some sort of conflict, like a light conflict, either ribbing or actual uh, and they, then they're seen sitting at a diner where Joe, excuse me, Steve had previously like cracked a joke and made everybody laugh and they sort of like get the food and go. Uh, but they're sitting in the diner and they're just not talking to each other, just looking in opposite directions. Steve is smoking a cigarette, but not really. I think really it's the exact it. same shot from yeah, earlier. I think it is like it's with like the, the, exact the Budweiser same. in the foreground, right? Yes, and then exactly. like, yeah. Uh, and, and then like three apparently tourists. I couldn't really see their faces, but they seem to be, I don't know, maybe they're white guys come in go into a back room and leave and Joe and Steve just like remain completely silent. Do not comment. Do not look at it or anything. It's just like sort of a weirdly tense shot in the moment. And it's not like accompanied by a whole lot. Of, I think it might be part of the monologue at a, at a certain point. I really fucking loved that shot. And it's 
like a little bit too long for you to say like, oh, there's a real strong purpose or something's going to pop off in this scene. Just people in, people out, very quick, very clean. I liked it. I liked it a lot. Um, but yeah, it is a very fun movie to watch. Uh, it, is, it is really interestingly filmed, sometimes handy cam, sometimes more still shot type stuff. But um, yeah, very inventive and a great first film from director Wayne Wang. I hope, I hope to see more from this guy. You know, I hope he really uh, turns out a few more. Um, but hey, we all had that chance at the trial on. We have one final segment of our show uh, before we close it out. And uh, the only person who's not um, playing the game needs to help me intro the scene. Uh, yeah, clear your throat and we'll get to it. Yeah, thanks. I was clearing my throat what? so that I could sing. <gasps> Cody's, Cody's Noties. Wow. Thank you, gentlemen. I can't find a better introduction anywhere. How about that? Oh, <laughs> uh, boy. Jokes. This week, we will be showcasing films that revolve around missing persons in an exercise I like to call, Where is the Try Love? Or if you want to keep it the same amount of syllables as the Black Eyed Peas song, which is kind of what I was going for, you could go, Where's the Try Love? That would also be acceptable in the noties canon what i'm gonna do uh, i'll go through and read a series of prompts related to the aforementioned flavor of movie after reading each statement i will ask y'all um an alphabetical by first name order so harry and then jason uh, to respond you'll get a point for every correct answer or closest to the correct answer and the person with the most points at the end will win as always trivia mafia rules apply here so use your noodles not your googles with that let's jump in uh, we're going to start with uh, a little little film from 2017 called you were never really here which was directed by Lynn Ramsey and stars Joaquin Phoenix. How tall is Lynn Ramsey, I, Harry? Oh, oh wow, a mix-up. Um, let's go Psych. five eight. Five eight. Says, uh, that seems tall. Uh, it's fine. Five eight's fine. Are you sure? Do you want to amend it? It no, isn't no, quite nope. stone yet. Okay, that's all right. All right, all right. That is the guess from Hair Bear. Um, based Jace. What do you think? I only saw one picture of Lynn Ramsey and it was around when I was watching Morvan Cowler. I think I'm going to, and I think it was like her on the uh, red carpet with somebody else. I seem to remember being struck at how tall she was and she could have been wearing heels or something. This is all Megillah. This is all, uh, this is how apparently based on that one woman's answer um, mm -hmm. or her academic uh, thesis on it. This is how a Chinese American would have answered the question rather than just answering the question. It's just how, like everything around surrounding a case of a why real Lynn Ramsey's height is missing situation. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and I think I found it. I think I found it at uh, five foot nine inches. I'm going to say five foot nine inches, five foot nine inches. Uh, yeah. Regrettably, that picture was Lynn Ramsey standing next to Shaq. So it just wasn't Shit. that much of a help. Um, th th thank you for your guesses. Going off a few sources on the internet, Lynn Ramsey is reportedly five feet two inches tall. Oh, wow. Some pretty mega heels. Uh, Why was she <laughs> open? She should have been directing movies. <laughs> <laughs> Cha ching! Swish. Um, yeah, so Harry, Harry gets the point there. He was one inch closer uh, to the correct height. Next, Goodness. though. Yeah, goodness, griefness, give me a, a I regret. I'm just going to stop it there. Oh. Yeah, the, the, you swished, I bricked. Um, next, we're going to pivot <laughs> to the film. Uh, hey, speaking of bricks, we're going to pivot to the film Brick 2005. Uh, that movie was directed by Ryan Johnson, stars JGL, and Kid Blue himself, Noah Segan. Um, shout outs all around. Johnson also directed 2008's The Brothers Bloom, which stars the likes of Rachel Weisz, Adrian Brody, Rinko Kikuchi, and Mark Ruffalo. Both of these films were released in theaters domestically as well as internationally. My question for you, when considering the box office halls for each of these films, is the difference between their totals uh, less than $2 million 
or greater than $2 million. So thinking about what each film brought home is the discrepancy between the two less than $2 million or greater than $2 million. Harry? Man, this is a kind of a tricky question. I, I kind of doubt either of those really fucking blew up the box office. Um, I guess I'll go greater than because I think that it was Brothers Bloom his second movie. You probably can't answer that. Uh, I think other than some, I, I, I think it was his second big movie. Shooting, yeah, shooting from the hip. I think it was his second big, like big, like mainstream, okay. mainstream-ish release. Yeah, I, I guess I'll go greater than because. That movie has an ensemble cast of a lot of big stars, so maybe it made more than $2 million more than Brick. Okay, I'm locking it in. Uh, Jason, would you like to cover the spread, or are you going to align with Harry on this one? I'm going to cover the spread. I I won't explain that. Okay. And the nice thing about this is that you don't need to, um, so that's perfect. According to online sources, Brick grossed around $3.9 million in theaters during its theatrical run, and the Brothers Bloom took in about $5.5 million, making the discrepancy less than $2 million. Yes. Um, the Brothers Bloom one really surprised me. I, yeah. Like, I, I wouldn't expect it. Like you said, Harry, I wouldn't expect that it. That must have like, been a real brick, huh? Hey, <laughs> a box office brick, well, that I, is. I remember I was just <laughs> listening to the Mark Maron episode with Ryan Johnson, and he was talking about how fucking nobody went to see that movie, and I loved making it, but like it's a miracle I got to make another movie I've after never, that. I've never seen that movie. Bombed. Yeah, it did bomb big time, so maybe that helped. I, hey, Brick is a great movie. So I think Brothers Bloom is also good. They're both great. Hey, I'd, I'll be the center like thing of the Venn diagram are you that be, we're constructing. Are you be They're the both donut. Are you the, yeah. the inside of the donut oh, that expands fuck. to encompass Rick and both? the Brothers yeah. Bloom are both also, part of my donut. Yeah, <laughs> mm, this is shaping up to be a pretty yummy donut. Um, I'm just going to grab another donut here for question three. We're going to move to the film Gone Girl which is about a gone girl. According to producer and David Fincher's wife, uh, apologies for pronunciation, uh, I'm pretty confident on the last name, first name, not so much, Seon Chafin. Uh, according to, to Chafin, Fincher took, on average, as many as blank takes for each scene, where blank, uh, when I said blank, that's a number. What is, my question for you, what is the number that Chafin put forth as the average number of takes per scene that, um, Fincher was was finagling during the uh, the filming of Gone Girl. Harry, um, finagling thirty, thirty Harry, takes. Harry he just is could not get 30. Ben Affleck to make a face that made sense uh, for his character. But eventually, he didn't get there. But he gave up. Hey, uh, Ben, could you not mention Boston in, in this one? It's not even in the script. Uh, so just don't even, I don't know how David Fincher sounds. Um, but I know that Ben My Affleck wife likes is missing Boston. and I'm in Boston. No, that's not the line. Ah, uh, ben, that is not the line. Um, uh, fellow Boston fan, Jason Daphnis, what's your guess for this? Uh, maybe you I must, like I must once say Mackinagling or Daphnagling. I will accept one of those in the future. Oh, but, um, I am going to say an average of, uh, 12. I feel like he's pretty pickety, but he was working with some talent. So. That's fair. Uh, Rosamund Pike, I think it was. She's fantastic mm-hmm. in that movie. Um, she's very good in that movie. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Ben Affleck was good too. I don't know. I led with her because I think she's, yeah, I don't know. I saw that movie once. I, yeah, she's same. got, she's got presence. Um, and we've got presence here. And hey, I've got a question to answer. So reportedly, Fincher took an average of 50 takes per scene during the Jesus filming of Gone Girl. Christ. He's like Stanley Cooper, cold my beer. That's this my more guy just accurate Fincher fucking impression. Hates making movies. I I don't blame him. It seems very <laughs> harsh. 
Um, but yeah, hey, uh, current look at the scoreboard. We've got uh, both of our fellows are on the board here. Two points for Harry, one point for Jason. Um, Boston, it's still anybody's Boston game. Boston. Uh, just putting it's not that a line, there. Cody. It's not the line. <laughs> oh, shit. F- cut. Cut, Jason. You'll edit that out. Uh, I'm sure. Um, I'm sure you won't, you little shyster. Uh, for question four, we're going to hit on the original Black Christmas. Which, hey, previous episode. Uh, what follows? I, I will now read a short behind-the-scenes anecdote regarding the filming of Black Christmas. <clears throat> Margot Kidder, who played the character Barb, remembered shooting the film as being quote fun. I really bonded with Andrea Martin, who played the character Phil. Uh, filming in Toronto and uh, and Ontario, um, she really enjoyed that. Uh, Olivia Hussey, who played the main character Jess, was a bit of an odd one. I'm still quoting Margot Kidder. She was a bit of an odd one. She was obsessed with the idea of falling in love with a certain celebrity through her psychic. We were a little hard on her for things like that. End quote. That's a lot to process, no doubt. But my question for you all is this. Which celebrity... Was Olivia Hussey allegedly obsessed with falling in love with through her psychic? And I'm going to give three choices. Uh, the option, your options are A, David Bowie, B, Elton John, or C, Paul McCartney. So which one of those, uh, celebrities was Olivia Hussey, uh, Olivia Hussey, excuse me, again, allegedly obsessed with falling in love with through her psychic during the filming of Black Christmas, Harry? It's got to be Bowie, right? It's got to be Bowie. I'm going with gotta Bowie. Hope it's Bowie. All right, locking in Bowie. Jason, what you think? Impossible to cover the spread, so you don't have to worry Impossible. about that. Um, I really wanted you to say uh, Lawrence Olivier to one of those answers, because if they, I, I like the idea that she was uh, gaming to become Olivia Olivier, which was <laughs> just really, really funny to me. Nice. Um, that would make I'm her going, something of a hussy, though, right? I'm going to say uh, Mr. Paul McCartney is the one that she was pining for uh, through the ether. Gotcha. She's right. got some bad news if uh, Elton John was who she was going after. I think you would need more than a psychic for that particular pairing to work out. Very true, very true. Um, also, uh, shout-outs to Olivia Hussey. She's great in Black Christmas. I yeah, feel bad for yeah. this question. All of this is alleged. It's very it feels funny. Weird. Yeah. Um, also, I don't know, Margot Kidder also rules. I don't know anything about Andrea Martin other than her presence in this movie, but it's a bomb ass movie with a bomb ass cast. Everybody's everybody's doing great. Um, maybe least of all us. Uh, but we're working on it. We're trying our best. Allegedly, Olivia Hussey was keyed in on falling in love with Paul McCartney through her psychic Woo. during the filming of Black Christmas. Um, gave him my heart. It's the, the wrong opinion, day, but a respectable no. one. Yeah, yeah. Why not? Um, Simply also, having a wonderful uh, Black Christmas time. That's true. <laughs> Probably a Christmas. bonus point for that. Uh, <laughs> no, this isn't Dan's detour. We're not giving out bonus points willy nilly. Um, I love Dan's detour's bonus Nick points. That Nagling, was really right? fun. <laughs> have you, you ever say so? Have you ever yeah. seen that that version of that song that it's just him saying um, the moon is high over and over again? <laughs> or wait, <laughs> what not. is the line? It's like something like that, but. I don't it, know. It just never cuts to the chorus, so it's just the weird <laughs> shit that he says before simply having go anyway, I'll find it. No no no, I, I've never I've never heard that, but funnily enough, what I've had stuck in my head for the last week or so is the the ver- the version of the song where it's just all the leaves are brown. 
All the leaves are brown. <laughs> I, I can't get that out of my head. It's it's really fucking funny. Um, but uh, you know what else is funny? And speaking of, wow, what segue do I want to go with? Okay, uh, uh, scratch that. It's not funny. But hey, speaking of Christmas time, we are tied. Both of those segues were bad. Uh, we're tied up two two, two apiece, two to piece. We've got one more question here. Still very much anybody's game for this fifth and final question. We will call upon the film Prisoners, which was directed by Denis Villeneuve and features uh, an impressive ensemble. What I'm going to do is list four actors from the film Prisoners' ensemble. What I'm going to ask each of y'all to do is rank them in order of most to fewest credited works using Letterboxd as our source. And because you guys know how this works, I'm going to list the actors and then I'll say the rest of the rest of the spiel in case somebody's tuning in for the first time. So the four actors, just so you can get them down and start thinking we've got Paul Dano, Viola Davis, Jake Gyllenhaal, and Hugh Jackman. So again, that's Paul Dano, Viola Davis, Jake Gyllenhaal, Hugh Jackman, ranking them in order of most to fewest credited works. Again, using Letterboxd as our source for this, you're going to get a point for each correctly slotted actor. And again, there's going to be four actors total in the mix. I just listed them off twice. Uh, so if you get the order perfectly correct, you'll get four points. If two of the actors are in the right places, you'll get two points, and so on and so forth. Um, so I read those off again. That's Paul Dano, Viola Davis, Jake Gyllenhaal, and Hugh Jackman um, uh, on based on the criteria of most to fewest credited works letterboxed style. Um, and we're going to start with Harry as the order dictates. Uh, Harry, you got these lined up? With no confidence whatsoever, but yes, I do have my answer. Um, Story of my life. Go for it, Big Daddy. Mo- most to least, I'm going to go with Jackman, number one, then uh, Davis, then Hall, then Dano. Gotcha, gotcha. And I'm just going to read those back. We've got Hugh Jackman, followed by Viola Davis, followed by Jake Hall, followed by uh, and I uh, Paul Dane, or excuse me, excuse me. Let me start again. Hugh Jackman, Viola Davis, Jake Hall. Paul Dano, is that right? Yep, that's right. Thank you. I, I I got caught thinking about Paul Dano and I got all flustered. Um, Me too. Over to yeah, yeah, really uh-huh. right. <laughs> do we do we still have that? <laughs> um, Jason, what's your guess? It was going to be exactly the same order as Harry, so I decided to swap my top two. I'm going to go uh, first being Viola Davis, second being Hugh Jackman, third being Jake Hillenhulahey, and fourth being Paul Dano. <laughs> oh. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, I'm going to read those back then. We've got Viola Davis, followed by Hugh Jackman, followed by Jake Gyllenhaal, followed by... Oh! That is correct. Perfect. Thank you very much, uh, gentlemen's. I'm just doing final tabulations here. Without further ado, um, I will now read off the correct order of these actors for most of you as credited letterbox works. And that list is as follows. Leading us, the the busiest of the bunch, (laughs) with 76 credited works to her name, Viola Davis. Viola Davis. Um, Hot on her heels with 75 credited works, Huge Jackman. Coming in second. I mean, he's been Uh, Wolverine at least 60 times on its own, (laughs) so... True. Yeah, but he's also on. He's he's the music man, uh, like three times a day for. He was the Australian his... in Australia. Yeah, but that was just once. He the was only Australian. Australian. <laughs> <laughs> it's the it's the titular role. Um, coming in third, 
with 59 credited oh. letterboxed uh, sourced appearances, we have Jakey Jills himself, Jake Gyllenhaal, All right. with Paul Dano bringing up the rear with 43 credited works. Um, both of our gentlemen got points here. Harry came away with two that round, giving him four for the game. Jason ran the gauntlet. He got all four of them correct, which gives him six for the game. Very solid showing from both of you. Um, who's to say how this would have turned out with Aaron here? Um, different spreads would have been covered, um, but we'll never know. And we're, we might be better off not knowing. Um, but in the meantime, that's thank you, one Grant. mystery I'm happy not to solve. Did it like the movie? I did it like the movie. All right. You did like the movie, man. You did do it like the movie. Um, thank you, gentlemen, for answering the question, where's the trial of? Jason, would you like to pop off a little bit? I'm not going to pop off much. Actually, this is going to be my, my podium of, of humility. I know for a fact, one, that Aaron is not going to listen to this episode. He might watch the movie, True. but I don't think he'll listen to the episode. And if he does, I don't think he's going to make it past maybe the midway point. I don't think he's got it in him. But I will say he would have stomped my ass easily on any of those questions. I think he would have been it would have been a hairy nah. Aaron game. It usually is, and I think this case would be no different. I think I think he probably would have done the same thing and maybe stuck with his cho- ranking of D- Davis, Jackman, Yellen Hulahe, and Dano. I think he probably would have matched me at least for that. I'm I'm pretty confident he would have beat me, but it would have tied me. I am just happy to be here sometimes. Yo, thank you so much, Cody, for another wonderful edition of Cody's. Would you like to pop off on another exciting edition of Cody's noties? Shout outs, by the way, to Jason's podium of humility. Um, I remember when he built it, he was really excited about it. He could not talk, stop talking about how amazing and big and well-constructed that podium was. Uh, congratulations again on that podium of humility, Jason. I, I can no longer accept the congratulations, um, but know that I have received and heard them. Uh, Thank you, Cody, for being such a wonderful host of our final segment of every episode. Uh, Hopefully you're never missing uh, because you're never missing from our hearts. Thank you uh, to you and thank you to our listeners for being here for another episode. Um, We did actually, in fact, our discussion did not last as long as the movie this time. Uh, The the episode has lasted longer than the movie, but or you know, whatever. Watch this on Criterion channel. There's also a rip on YouTube. It's not the highest quality. The subtitles that are there, you might not be able to read, but it is all there and it's all in English. Check it out. Well, not all in English. Diegetically, it's sometimes in Cantonese or Mandarin, but check it out. It's a fun, great movie, as you've probably discovered from this. Uh, Watch it again if you've already seen it before or, uh, you know, hit up whatever your favorite torrent site to get a, get a copy um find us on twitter at trial of podcast find the trial on a trial on cinema and trialon.org you can find the link in the show notes to the series about wayne wang and others at the trial on coming up this year uh, a lot of great stuff on the programming slate and actually we've seen previews of uh, the next one i believe for summer fall and it's going to be a big a big time watch out uh, and watch this feed for some cool shit and if you want to be on it if you want to see your name in that little titles section if you think that you might want to talk about a movie at the trial on with us if you want to get uh one uh, be part of the infamous try love guest bump where you get maybe one or two additional followers on twitter it, uh, this I is don't for wanna, you let's not let's not overpromise, cody i don't think that we can we can say we're good for one or two oh followers. really a classic really promiser the the person who wants to sh- shout out to the world th- through the trial of twitter we've made it to 150 and then somebody unfollows it's, us hours listen, later that's worth that's worth celebrating you Here's gotta celebrate thing. the little victories Here's the thing. I'm going to call my shot. If you're on this show, we will follow you on Twitter until you get canceled with the Twitter account, with the trial and Twitter, try love Twitter account, Tough because but fair. we do that with all of our guests. And if you're a piece of shit, eventually we'll unfollow you, but don't worry about it. Just don't do that. Uh, but check it out. We would love to talk to you about movies. And if you 
aren't comfortable behind mic, just find us at the trial on sometime. We're usually there weekends. We're often there. At least I'm there every once every couple of weeks. Girlfriend things. But check us out on Twitter, Trial the Podcast, Trial on Cinema, and at Trial My name is Jason Daphnis. Thank you for spending some time with us. Funny and Ned Doofus, Cody Go. This motherfucker said girlfriend things. This piece of shit. Watch this movie. Paul Dano dot MP3. Indeed. Uh, watch this movie. Uh, we didn't, I, the runtime got mentioned. It does abide by the Rashomon rule. And honestly, I could have spent a little more time uh, in this world, to be perfectly honest. Uh, mm. Really great. Goes down real smooth. Uh, and it was also mentioned up top, but it does have a criterion release. And I'm going to be picking that up. Uh, I don't know, pretty soon here. Whenever there's a sale, we'll go with that. One of the famous patented um, Aaron Grossman Summary criterion sales. sales. Yeah, exactly. Um, I've been Codium the Podium Narvison. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Yeah, thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Wayne Wang. This is a great movie. Um, definitely check it out. Definitely the sort of movie that, like, we made this podcast for, right? So it's super great to see it at the Trilon. Um, and as Jason noted, uh, John's really, really crushing it this year with his Slato picks, as he always is. So check out the Trilon coming up. It's going to be some good stuff. Um, I've been Harry Mack, and you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. You see, I'm doing a paper on the legal implications of cross-cultural misunderstandings, and Mr. Chan's case is a perfect example of what I'm trying to expose here. You see, the policeman and Mr. Chan had completely different culturally-related assumptions about what kind of communication each one was using. For instance, the policeman, in an English-speaking mode, asked a direct factual question. They're interested in facts, and that's all. Asked, did you stop at the stop sign? Expected a yes or no answer, simple yes or no answer. Mr. Chan, however, rather than giving him a yes or no answer, began to go into his past driving record, how good it was, the number of years he'd been in the States, all the people that he knew, trying to relate different events or objects or situations to what was happening then to the action at hand. Now, this is very typical, as I'm sure you know, of most Chinese speakers trying to relate possibly unrelated objects or seemingly unrelated objects to the matter at hand. The Chinese try to relate points or events or objects that they feel are pertinent to the situation, which may not to anyone else seem directly relevant at the time. At any rate, at this, the policeman became rather impatient, restated the question, did you or did you not stop at the stop sign in a rather hostile tone, which in turn flustered Mr. Chan, which caused him to hesitate answering the question, which further enraged the policeman so that he asked the question again, you didn't stop at the stop sign, did you? In a negative tone, to which Mr. Chan automatically answered, no. Now, to any native speaker of English, no would mean, no, I didn't stop at the stop sign. However, to Mr. Chan, no, I didn't stop at the stop sign was not, no, I didn't stop at the stop sign. It was, no, I did not stop at the stop sign. In other words, yes, I did stop at the stop sign. Do you see what I'm saying?
You see, I'm doing a paper on the legal implications of cross-control. Uh, fuck, 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 fuck. I was doing cross, I, cross country I've done this like four times. <laughs> Clean. <laughs> Cut this one out. I'll give you a clean read. All right. <clears throat> All right. All right. Uh, I'm distracted by the the Timberwolf score that's floating uh, up into. Did the they win? Here. I, What's up? Uh, it's uh, it's, it's second quarter. They're in. They're in. Oh fuck! They are in San Francisco. They're playing the Golden State Warriors. Oh! They're up. They're up. Forty two thirty six. But six and a half minutes to go in the second quarter. There's still okay. a lot of basketball. Still very much anybody's still game. Anybody's as game. one might yeah. say. Yeah. All right. Anyway, sorry. I'll try this again. 